the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. 1 Timothy, Chapter 6 All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God the blessed and the only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might for ever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care, turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. And so we come to the final talk in our series entitled Back Behind the Front Line. Exploring the letter of 1 Timothy. First, I'm going to try to sum up some of the themes in the letter that we have looked at over the past five weeks, 
And then I want to move into a more in-depth discussion of money in 1, chap in 1 Timothy chapter 6. During this series, we've learned that 1 Timothy is addressed to a young leader called Timothy, with the aim of providing him with wisdom for leading a church in Ephesus. The letter is bookended in chapter 1 and chapter 6 by the confrontation of false teaching. The foundation of the message is contained in Paul's poem about Jesus Christ in chapter 3, verse 16. This is what it says. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Salvation has arrived through the mercy, grace and love of Jesus to the worst of sinners. Now, the letter contains some guidance that sounds discriminatory by modern standards, such as the teaching that women must not teach or assume authority over a man. Gemma, in her talk, reminded us that we need to understand why women in this specific context were being told not to teach. It was not because of their gender. It was because their education and understanding of the gospel was lacking. Now, Nick, in week one, reminded us that the test of any doctrine is love. The Apostle Paul, who is the named author of 1 Timothy, makes it clear that the goal of these commands is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And so, to close our series, let's turn to the teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 6, which contains one of the most famous sayings in the entire Bible, and one of the most ignored sayings in the entire Bible. But we'll come to that. Now, the characteristics of the false teachers are plain to see in 1 Timothy 6, verses 4 to 5. They were conceited. They had an unhealthy interest in controversies. They quarrelled about words. They created conflict. They stirred up unhealthy emotions in others. They instigated unhealthy conversations. They cultivated evil suspicions. And finally, they were motivated by financial greed or financial gain. What is interesting here is the medical language used. The sound or healthy teaching of the Lord Jesus is contrasted with the unhealthy false teachers. In the wider Greek culture, human vices were regarded as diseases, and it was believed that sound teaching could cure these moral illnesses. And so the false teachers are presented as though they have a physical disease. I find this very interesting because in recent years, there's been a spate of books describing modern consumerism and materialism as a disease. The word affluenza has been cropping up all over the place. Now, don't ask me how all these books and films with these titles I'm showing on the slide um, can have the same title and still be on the right side of copyright law. I've no idea. But by far the best book I've read is by the author Clive Hamilton that describes our model compulsion for material and financial growth. Clive Hamilton 
his book, The Growth Fetish. Um, I don't believe Clive is a, a Christian, but I certainly um, consider that he's sympathetic to Christian beliefs in his writings. That's The Growth Fetish. Um, well recommended if you want to get to grips with the affluenza theme. Now, of course, there's nothing new under the sun. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 talks about the sound instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some commentators believe that this is referring to everything that has been explained in the letter up to this point. But I think those listening would recall the teachings of Jesus. If we just take a zoom through the gospel according to Luke, I think it will make the point. Luke chapter 6 verse 20. Blessed you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Chapter Luke chapter 6 verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. And then we think about the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8 that describes the seed that fell among thorns that was choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures. Remember Luke 12, the rich man who planted or planned to build a bigger barn but died before he could enjoy any of the benefits. Remember the parable in Luke 16, the rich man who died and was sent to eternal torment in hell. And finally, the parable of the rich young man in Luke 18, who was instructed by Jesus to sell everything he had and give to the poor. When he was unable to do this, Jesus commented, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The teaching is emphatic here and so is the teaching in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. The New International Version translates verse 10 like this. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Philip Towner, in his commentary on the pastoral letters, he argues that it should be more emphatic than this. Towner translates the Greek text as the love of money is the root of every evil. Towner suggests that to tame the translation is to soften the indictment of the greedy opponents. I believe Towner is right and that the love of money is the root of every evil. So I want to try to explain why, because it's not at all obvious that money has this role. Now, my first point is that money is created as debt. For the majority of human history, physical money, for example, coins, were simply tokens that represented debt. In modern banking, when a bank issues a loan to someone, it is enabled to create the corresponding amount of money. The creation of money as debt is the driver of economic growth because lenders not only have to pay back the principal sum of their loans, they have to pay interest. Now, you might be interested to know that the Bank of England was founded in 1694 to raise money to fund a war with France. A consortium of English bankers made a loan 
of £1.2 million to the King of England, and in return they received a royal monopoly to issue banknotes. In other words, they were allowed to monetize the newly created royal debt. This was a great deal for the bankers. They got to charge the king 8% annual interest on his loan, but also got to simultaneously charge interest on the money that was borrowed by other clients. The royal loan has never been paid back, and if it were, the entire monetary system of Great Britain would collapse. For there to be money, there has to be debt. Now, debt-based economies create a tremendous striving for economic growth. And this has a psychological dimension to it. The monetary system requires us to be particular kinds of human beings. Humans that are desiring and striving for more than they have. The monetary system creates a human turned away from God and towards activity in the pursuit of money. This desiring, striving human being could be one reason why money is the root of every evil. That's the first point. The second reason this interpretation of the, or this translation of the verse is correct by Towner is that money could be the root of pride. Um, it's the root of all evil because of pride, which of course is at the heart of sin. The story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 shows them turning away from God and turning to self as they eat the forbidden fruit. Pride is self-love and self-reliance and self-dependency. In 2006, Catherine Vose and her colleagues published the findings of their research into the psychological consequences of money. Their economic experiments found that money brings about a self-sufficient orientation in which people prefer to be free of dependency and dependence. Reminders of money in their experiments led to reduced requests for help and reduced helpfulness towards others. Participants primed with money preferred to play alone, work alone and put more physical distance between themselves and a new acquaintance. In other words, money is closely associated with self-love and pride. As Jesus said in Matthew 6 verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the third point, or the third reason that money might be the root of every evil, is captured by the phrase money is power. Money has many functions. It is a measure of value. It is a means through which value circulates. It is a means of hoarding a means of payment and a universal currency. When we have money, it lends power to our desire to act in the world. I want something, I can pay for it. I desire a commodity, I buy it. All well and good. We are using money to achieve some end that we desire. But when we realise the power of money to achieve desirable ends, something strange happens we start to desire money itself. Accumulating money becomes an end in itself. 
we may even start to buy things because we know we can convert them at a later date into cash. Theologian Catherine Tanner puts it this way. Money gains in this way the ability to motivate all other motives, since whatever else one desires, one can also seek the possibility of making money thereby. By bringing them all under a single desire, money collects the diversity of all motives into one. It thereby absorbs particular desires within itself, submerging the limited value of all such objects of desire beneath the unspecifiable and potentially unlimited desirability of money. Last semester, I was asked to teach a module at the University of Exeter entitled Principles of International Business. It brought home to me that we now live in an age dominated by finance, dominated capitalism, where everyday realities are shaped by the demands of economic markets. Did you realise that the pace that your employer forces you to work at is a direct result of the demands for profit placed upon the organisation that you work in? Companies and public sector organisations are financed through debt. It is these demands for monetary gain that create conditions of modern slavery for many workers around the world. The currency markets operate 24-7 all year round. And in one day, the, the worldwide volume of currency transactions averages between five and six trillion dollars. This is more than the total value of the global import and export of goods over three months. Money really does make the world go round, but this is a major problem because we have lost sight of the ends that money is supposed to serve. The financial crash in 2008 was evidence of this. So what are Christians in an age of hunger to do? By the way, if you haven't read Ron Sider's brilliant book with that title, you really should. First of all, be content. Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Matthew 6, 11 to 12. Jesus taught us to be content. To trust God for our daily bread is based upon a principle of sufficiency. We are to be content with enough for our daily needs and not to strive for more. If we are content with enough, we will forgive our debtors so that they can be free of the desire that drives their greed. And this is the message in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. This clearly echoes the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 34, where he instructs the disciples not to worry about what they will eat or drink, because they should trust their heavenly father will provide these things. So are we content and trust that our heavenly father will provide for our needs? Are we trusting in God or are we trusting in money? The second thing to keep in mind is we, we should seek godliness. 
the word godliness keeps cropping up, doesn't it? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, live in all godliness and holiness. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus is the source from where godliness springs. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, godliness has value for all things. 1 Timothy 6, verse 5, talks about false godliness. And 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And finally, in verse 11, Timothy is instructed to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Theologian Catherine Tanner interprets godliness as a direction in which we are heading. Instead of being directed towards money, we are to be directed towards God. She calls this God-wardness. The one thing that has really spoken to me in preparing this talk is that God-wardness can be achieved in situations of failure. In the pursuit of money, failure to invest in the right goods at the right time is catastrophic. In contrast, God-wardness can be achieved despite the failure of every project designed to serve God. A wonderful example are two friends of mine who are now um, with the Lord. Um, Brian and Jill were Christians with massive hearts for God. They were loving, kind and had the character of Christ. They also had the best Brummie accents you have ever heard. They ran a shoe shop together that went under, but it didn't stop them being godly and orientated to God. I don't think I could have coped with failure in business like they did. The Lord still needs to deal with my pride and perfectionism. But I have Brian and Jill as my teachers. They knew that you cannot put your trust in wealth, which is so uncertain. They knew that hope in God provided true riches. They knew that they were laying up treasures in heaven through pursuing God in righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. In the coming age, I am sure that Brian and Jill will be providing shoes for us all. And as I reflect on my many failures in life, I have come to realise that if we make God our universal source of value, not money or status or success, we are enabled to be godly. And finally, rich Christians are called to be generous and share their wealth. How generous are you with your money? How generous have you been to this fellowship over the years? How generous have you been in supporting the needs of the destitute in our world? There is massive need just in our community in Exeter, but the problems are worse in other regions of our country. By some estimates, 26% of children in the southwest live in relative poverty. If we are a one Timothy church, we need to be generous. There's a lot of talk about levelling up in the political agenda of political parties in this country. The clear message in scripture is that levelling down is required. The rich are to give away their wealth to those who need it and lay up treasure in heaven. So let's pray. Let's just take a moment to reflect upon our bank balance and our income. We may be in very different positions to each other 
And so we remember the words of Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of my God. Let's turn to consider our attitude towards money. If we have become arrogant, Lord, forgive us and help us to repent. If we have put our hope in wealth, please forgive us and help us to repent. If we have become discontent, please forgive us and help us to repent. If we have lost sight of the lives of the poor, please restore our vision. Father, we ask that you would provide us with anticipation of the coming age, that we might live our lives in the light of the eternal life that you have promised. Amen.